So hello to all of you on the live stream. Hello to all of you here in the room. For those who do not know me, my name is Rachel Stoll. I'm a senior associate here at the Stimson Center. Um, I run the Conventional Defense Program, which looks at a wide variety of issues related to the international arms trade, including how the arms trade is regulated, and that's what we're going to be talking a lot about today. Um, we are here to talk about the launch of a new report. If you do not have a copy of the full report or the short summary, if this seems too daunting, you can just read the five-page version. There are copies on the side of the um, room along with bio sheets, but this, for those who can't read this online, it's called With Great Power, Modifying U.S. Arms Sales to Reduce Civilian Harm. But we also today want to talk about how the United States can mitigate the risk of negative consequences that arise in places where the U.S. sells conventional weapons and the ramifications for civilians in particular. And certainly, I am beyond delighted that we were able to partner with Civic for this report and for this launch and for this entire project. Um, I've been in Washington for 20 years now, and I feel like I've earned a little bit the right to pick my partners and who I want to work with. And so I was particularly pleased when Dan asked me if I wanted to work on this project, not only because I think Dan is great, but I also think that the subject matter that we're going to discuss is particularly relevant, it is timely, and it's really important. Um, and the reason that it's important, and I think it's important to say from the outset, that this report and this event and my personal beliefs are not about um, banning all arms sales and saying there's no arms sale that is good and they're all bad. It's not what we're here to do. But that being said, as long as the arms trade exists, we need to make sure that it is done in a responsible and accountable way. And the United States, which is the world's largest arms exporter, has a particular responsibility to ensure that weapons that, it's trans that it transfers are undertaken responsibly and are done in accordance not only with national policy and national regulations, but national laws and international laws and standards. And there's a wide body of those that exist, and we go through them in the report, and I'll let, I'll let Dan speak to them. But there are ways in which that, as arms sales are undertaken, that we can ensure that they are done so in a responsible way. So in a sense, we're very lucky because the United States has a very robust arms transfer process in place. And for those sort of arms trade nerds out there, this report does an excellent job of providing a primer to that process or those processes because there are many different processes for arms sales. There isn't just one kind of arms sale that happens and we check one box, but there are many different processes, and this is a great primer um, for that understanding and, and um, the ways in which the U.S. arms sales processes actually work. That includes policies, that includes laws, that includes regulations, that includes lots of really well-intended and good people who are making these decisions every day. This is a human decision-making process, and we have lots of people involved in that chain. And so we'll talk about today how the U.S. already has uh, in place a number of controls that help uh, ensure the integrity of the arms sales process and to reduce the risk of unintended consequences. And what we want to talk about is what does that look like and how can we improve that. Um, one of the reasons that we wanted to do this report, to have this event, is that although 
these safeguards are very well intended. They are often subject to misapplication or overly broad interpretation. And what we've seen is the reality that sometimes U.S. arms sales are used to cause civilian harm or used in places where human rights abuses have occurred. And I think everyone's objective is to um, prevent that from happening and to um, ensure that U.S. weapons do not cause civilian harm. So I'm delighted that we have two panelists um, on our um, event, at our event today. Um, there there's a bio sheet also in the back of the room that looks like this. If you haven't seen it, I'm not going to read um, their, their bios. But we have Larry Lewis to my right, or to, no, to my left, your right, my left, um, who's the former advisor at the U.S. State Department. And we have Dan Mahaji, who currently is the U.S. Uh, director of the U.S. Program for Center for Civilians in Conflict, but also was previously at the State Department. And both of these gentlemen were intimately involved in the arms sales process and have uh, practical expertise of how um, these systems work. So each of these panelists brings sort of their unique perspectives um, to this panel to ensure um, that arms sales are done in a, in a legal and responsible way and that weapons are used as intended. And I think what we'll do is start with Dan to sort of go over the report and what we found and why we did it, and then turn to Larry who can talk about sort of his experiences and the ways in which we can try and mitigate um, harm. And then we will open it up also to questions from the audience here. I'm sorry those of you watching at home can't ask a question. We're working on that. Uh, but we'll, uh, we'll turn to, to all of you to ask questions and provide some comments as well. So Dan, thank you and welcome. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Rachel, for that uh, uh, extremely gracious uh, um, introduction and, and welcome. Um, I just want to briefly say I don't want to spend a lot of time doing it, but I've earned a similar privilege. <laughs> we are not good direction followers here. <laughs> <laughs> Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. I've earned no similar uh, sort of privilege in picking who I work with all the time, but um, in this case, um, I'm so profoundly grateful that you uh, chose to partner with us on this because I think for Stimson, this was a little bit of a, um, a different kind of, of project in, in what it uh, included and involves some issues that, that can become sensitive uh, at times for, for different uh, stakeholders. So, so very grateful, Rachel, for acknowledging uh, the importance. Also just want to say that to, to put me and Larry uh, in the same sentence, Dr. Lewis in the same <laughs> sentence uh, in the introduction is a little bit of a uh, misleading because uh, Larry is a source of so much of what, about I, of what I know on the issue of civilian harm. And um, it's a huge uh, distinct uh, privilege to be sitting up here with him. He's sort of like a, a non-CGI Yoda up here on the stage with whom I, I share. So, so grateful that you're here too, uh, uh, Larry. Um, I'm going to talk just for briefly about sort of why this issue, why this report, uh, why now. Uh, I'm going to then talk just um, also briefly about the, the philosophy of approach because I think it matters um, to the analysis, to anybody who's reading the report in the way uh, we chose to analyze what we analyzed uh, and the conclusions and recommendations we ended up making. Um, and so bear with me as, as I do that for a moment. Um, and then at the, at the very end, I'll talk about some of the buckets of recommendations that we laid out there that I think are a function of some of that, that uh, methodological approach, that philosophy, without getting into all of the specific recommendations because um, as much as you and the three people out in the Twitter sphere who are watching this uh, want to hear me drone on, um, I, I think probably um, best served by having Larry uh, offer comments and then having as much of a conversation as possible. So without further ado, why this report on this issue at this moment in time? 
there are really two reasons why we, we chose to undertake this project uh, at, the, at the outset. The first reason really relates to sort of phenomena that are taking place at, at more or less the global level. It doesn't really matter which source you, you choose to look at. The bottom line is that, at least by one accounting, uh, we had 102,000 people killed in armed conflict last year. That's probably a, 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 an undercount um, by any estimation, or at least a conservative estimate. Um, conflicts are raging in more places than ever. We had at least 34 countries by one count with an active armed conflict uh, taking place within their borders, I think, and a number of other countries that are either involved as a primary party or a secondary party to conflict. Related to that, and the reason that this is included in the, in the report um, is the fact that the Secretary General laid out the relationship between you know, armed conflict and the proliferation of, of arms, be they conventional arms you know, sold and purchased uh, uh, on the commercial market or through direct, you know, sort of government-to-government -government sales, or, you know, improvised and developed sort of uh, ad hoc by, in some cases, armed non-state groups, and unfortunately, in some cases, by, by state actors, like barrel bombs in Syria. So the issue is, is to me, taken on a sort of unprecedented importance uh, in terms of the relationship between, in general, the issue of the arms trade and arms proliferation, arms production, and conflict, its proliferation, its duration, um, its inception. Um, and so this issue to me uh, was worthy of, of some focus. But the second reason, and the reason um, you know, I think we uh, really pushed us over the edge in doing something specific on the US arms trade, really has more to do with the United States. Um, and when I say that, what I mean is, number one, the US has had and has the institutions with which to engage um, on constructive policy recommendations that are more likely to lead um, to refinements on the margins. There's also a traditionally been at least some policy context within which you can work that says, yes, we want to advance American economic and industrial interests, but we also want to do it in such a way that preserves the international institutions we fought to actually help create and to establish and to protect and enforce, um, and because, quite frankly, as some combination of American security interests and American values, and I have no problem saying American values, are served by sort of greater due diligence when it comes to the way that arms that are manufactured in the United States are, are sold. So there was kind of an, an opportunity in, in, to have a partner in this, and, and that kind of gets back into the methodology that we undertook in terms of actually trying to engage with the government and thinking about the government, how they would receive it, and what they might be actually willing to do with it, with the recommendations if they were to read it. Um, because I think we, we all learned in whatever grad school we went to that it's only useful if it's prescriptive, and so that was, that was Realistic we'll deal with later, but prescriptive at least is part of it. Um, but there's a second part of that, that too, which is not just sort of the, the possibility of a partner in a history of institutions, but also there was a moment in time this year when you would read the papers and you saw the discourse around high-profile arms sales heavily infused not only with a sense of politics, but also with the connection to actual real-time conflicts that were taking place and consequences for civilians. There are many of you in the audience who have been dealing with this, this a lot longer than I am, Rachel, Rachel included, Larry too, Bill Hartung, others in the room who have been dealing with the arms trade for a long time and can easily relate it to conflicts. But I think in this last year, you did see headline pictures from Yemen, uh, from Nigeria, and other places where the, the concept of a US arms transfer took on new political dimensions because of the very explicit connection between that transfer and the likely consequences for civilians uh, in a conflict that the US may or may not have any interest in being involved with. 
So there was that that kind of raised the, the issue. So more or less that gave us the, not only the rationale, I think, but the, the strong motivation uh, to undertake the project. Um, so the premise was, um, you know, basically could you avoid that set of circumstances given the set of variables that I described earlier in terms of, you know, the possibility that there would be a receptive audience to, to, to doing something about those headlines. What would you do about it and could you? Uh, and that was kind of the, 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 the question that we asked at the outset of the project. Could you engineer these processes to, to avoid these sort of unforeseen consequences? And could you raise these unforeseen consequences, undesired consequences, to a higher profile in the overall calculation of what the U.S. government thinks about when it's looking at an arms transfer? At Center for Civilians in Conflict, and, and also given my own personal background, to me, it's, it's intuitive and only you know, uh, natural that, of course, the first thing you would think about when you're looking at whether or not you want to approve a license or enter into a letter of agreement would be, well, are any civilians going to end up being killed if I undertake this transaction? Well, to the civil servant or the ambassador, you know, thinking about these things, they're also thinking about a range of other motivating interests. They're thinking about the economic incentives. They're thinking about the, the diplomatic benefits that are, uh, inherit from some of these transactions. They're thinking about a range of other things. And they're also thinking about risks, but not just the risks I'm describing. They're thinking about the risk of technology transfer. They're thinking about the risk of unauthorized or unintended diversion to other states or other non-state groups, terrorist organizations, et cetera. So the idea was, let's, let's take this issue, this, this individual, this child in a house somewhere in, I'm not going to use Yemen because it's almost become natural just to divert to Yemen every time, but this child who has no part in the decision as to whether or not the country that used that weapon um, is dropped on his or her house. Let's enter them into the conversation, raise the profile of that voice, which is something that I think is the, you know, at the center of what Civic tries to do. Um, and so this, this report is an effort to represent some of those interests and to raise the profile of those interests in the overall risk estimation that the government undertakes when it looks at the viability uh, of a sale. So briefly, just on the approach, the report, if you've read it, essentially, through the, through the course of the research uh, that produced the report, um, I hope that it's somewhat reflected that there are kind of three philosophical approaches that we took um, as we conducted the research and on the premise that the U.S. government sees these transactions as you know, legitimate in service of economic or, or security interests. First, if you look at the process end-to-end, -end, you have to kind of de- construct the incentive structure that exists in a distributed system of decision making, whether that's at the State Department, at the Pentagon, or in industry or at the embassy, you kind of have to understand what's motivating choices at various moments of time in a process that ultimately leads not only to the transaction, but the constraints that bind a policymaker once the transaction's already been taken place when it comes to making a, a, a change from the status quo. In other words, if I understand that it's much more difficult for a U.S. ambassador to change the relationship in, in a weapon sales arrangement with the government, you know, long after the sale's already been concluded, but now situation, the circumstances on the ground are different, how do I get at that incentive structure for that ambassador? How do I convince the ambassador it is worth to say, you know what, we're no longer going to continue this relationship in the same way. What tools can I empower the ambassador with to expand his available options? But more importantly, just how do we understand those incentives uh, from start to finish? The second sort of philosophical um, sort of variable that we um, integrated into this, which relates in part to the first, is how do you 
string the process along into sort of its constituent parts and then evaluate upstream opportunities to minimize risk um, earlier on. So if it's possible to avoid these embarrassing outcomes by changing variables in the process further upstream, whether that's in the, you know, the sort of uh, preliminary analysis that you conduct um, that informs your risk assessment, whether that's in the, the establishment of more clear expectations or whether that's in the terms of sale, what are things that you can tweak that are ultimately going to, number one, get at some of those incentives, but also give you more options down the road, which is really kind of the third philosophical approach to this, which is, what options can we make available, whether that's flexibility, um, whether that's information, um, whether that's um, sort of selectivity when you're looking at kind of the risk assessment, can you give to the policymakers so that they don't feel bound? And if you look at the timeline of, of a transaction from start to finish, what you really want to do is avoid a circumstance in which you have put yourself into a corner where you're not able to make you know, a decision because you feel like you have no other option. And I think it's that phenomenon to me that colored the political discussion around some of the high-profile weapons cases that we're seeing, and I will mention specific names now, like the Saudi Arabia case or Nigeria, where it just seemed like policymakers felt like they had run out of options, um, and some legislators were willing to put their back up against the wall, and others were willing to put their back up against the wall uh, from a different point of view. If you can get away from that, that point by providing policymakers with options that they can exercise that mitigate risk, um, but nonetheless optimize some of their perceived or anticipated policy outcomes. That was kind of the, the philosophical approach. Now, now comes like the, the boring wonky part, <laughs> which is the actual analysis of the process and the recommendations we came to, but I, I wanted to frame that so that um, you understand that the approach we took was not, let's document specific cases of civilian harm and then you know, point to the, the you know, who's responsible and then you know, basically compel a change in the, in the traditional method of I won't call it name and shame. I think that takes on sort of pejorative terms, and I think there's a place for that kind of document, documentation work. But in this case, it was more, let's, let's look at the government, the process it undertakes, and recognize these are human beings that are doing this, that have mixed incentives, but nonetheless are not purely motivated by, you know, we want to see more dead kids in country X. Um, I don't think they're motivated at all by that, in fact, um, and see what we, can, what we can do. So within... If you take that philosophical sort of frame and then you look at the buckets of recommendations, I'll just lay out a couple for you here that maybe will stimulate some discussion as we continue. And I, I hope that, that you read the long form of the report. It's much better than the short version of the report. The short version is kind of like the comic book version. So if you're serious about this issue, uh, you'll read the, the longer version, <coughs> including the 10-page including the, including the, including the description of the foreign military sales process uh, from end to end. And there was a test at the back. Um, <laughs> So we argue, uh, well, kind of. this is in no particular order, but it may come out that way, uh, not by design. So we argue that stronger analysis of country capabilities, processes, and controls, and I think you can interpret that in a couple of different ways, both in terms of a country's wherewithal and ability to um, apply and um, implement uh, human, sort of international human rights requirements, international humanitarian law, um, requirements, or you can look at it more purely from a tactical point of view in terms of do they have the, the capability systems in place to actually deploy this weapon uh, in accordance with its intent. Um, we think that that sort of you know, enhanced risk analysis purely as a function of this issue of civilian harm um, would actually expand the range of options available to policymakers because it would give them, I think, a more um, you know, fully informed uh, sort of risk, understanding of the risks. Um, this 
has resource implications. This is difficult. I think this is not a near-term thing. And I also should represent that there are systems in place and, and analytical frameworks in place that currently a desk officer or a security cooperation officer or even ambassador country team uh, do use to do an analysis. And also analysis is ongoing all the time. I mean, you have INR and the other Intel community members who are looking generally at some of these things. The question is, are there ways that we can adapt those existing analytical processes specifically to get at variables that are most related to what, I'm, what we're describing in the report in terms of um, you know, civilian harm, be it lawful or not, um, and integrate some of those variables into existing analytical frameworks or come up with new ones um, to give you a better sense of what, what you're actually getting into when you, when you make a sale. The premise here is, look, at the end of the day, you want to go ahead and it's the policy stupid, make a choice because they're an important partner and you're going to sell in spite of all the risk. That's fine as long as that, that decision is fully informed by um, the risk. And I shouldn't say that's fine. I mean, that's, that's your choice, um, U.S. government. Um, to make. So, and I have to stop saying we, by the way. I, it's a small W, but I do not represent the U.S. government um, and no longer work there, uh, a fact for which they are very grateful. Um, <laughs> the second uh, bucket of recommendations really deals with um, aspects of the relationship, and this also invites, um, it's slightly provocative and possibly sensitive even, um, but having a greater understanding before, during, and after a transaction of how the weapon will be used how the weapon system um, is being used and how it was used, um, again, does deal with issues of resources and, and access, but uh, I think there is a strong case to be made that there are certain systems and certain partners and certainly certain times, especially those most proximate to an actual armed conflict, when you want to have greater fidelity on the way that the thing that you made in the United States is being used or was used. And the fact of the matter is that that's not a, that is not a, a solution that is scalable around the world, but we would argue uh, is worthy of, of, a, of um, a greater emphasis uh, under a, a whole number of different circumstances where um, we would we'd probably like to know how a precision guided munition was, was used or expended. And I, and I think that there's actually some feasibility in that recommendation, uh, even if it has to be implemented over some time. Um, the third bucket of recommendations deals with kind of the contractual arrangement or the terms. Um, it's our recommendation and our understanding from the research that Perhaps paradoxically, um, U.S. policymakers' interests are better served with more clear, more transparent, and in some cases, uh, more strict sort of pre-sale conditions or terms of sale. I think sometimes when you deal with issues around um, sort of sovereign concerns of human rights or, or international humanitarian law, some of these issues where the conduct of, a, of another sovereign is in question, there's the sense that if you just avoid the issue, the sensitivity will go away once you have to make a decision. And I actually would argue that in my own experience, it's those circumstances in which the partner becomes surprised or you're doing something that seems um, that you're applying it unequally. In other words, we're picking on the Nigerian government instead of picking on the government of Belize because they're the Nigerians and your human rights organizations are, are always putting you know, Nigeria in the newspaper. And I apologize if we have any Nigerian viewers. I, I'm using country examples. Um, and I actually think if, if if policymakers, as a matter of practice, suggest, look, this is, these are the terms. This is the law. These are the regulations. These are the conditions of use. You are welcome to purchase our items so long as you, know, you abide by them. And the second that you don't, we will exercise our discretion as to whether or not we're going to then change the terms of, of our own involvement in the sale, whether that's with restricting you know, further sales, whether that's changing the way that you can currently use something or whatever whatever it is, but I do think sort of greater transparency and clarity uh, is important. Several recommendations deal with decreasing 
uh, ambiguity uh, when it comes to those things. There's also, I think, within that, um, perhaps some debate to be had, but I, I think still worth mentioning that the emphasis on civilian harm, be it you know, as a matter of a violation of international law or not, um, does deserve um, some attention explicitly or implicitly in the way the government is using, looking at end use of its items. Um, and I, I also think it's worth the public's understanding what we mean when we see end use monitoring and how that's different from kind of post-sale evaluations from a policy perspective because end use monitoring and the programs that are, um, you know, the named programs that relate to that, the Blue Lantern program, et cetera, will not necessarily in scope cover many of the things we think about when we think about sort of evaluating how um, a partner is, is using um, a weapon system or a defense item. So that's another sort of set of recommendations. I'm, I've only got two left, so you only have to bear with this uh, monotone droning for another two seconds. Um, the one issue that gets a lot of attention in policy recommendations is one that we chose to include, but I'm glad it's one of many, and that has to deal with the customizing of the capacity building and training that accompanies the provision of a weapon system. It's important to include because it can be a very effective means. I'm actually hoping Larry can talk about some of the, the parameters around which uh, it can be effective. Um, but we also think that it should be you know, highly customized and, and developed as a function of some of the analysis we described earlier. And it may not relate in any, in any case to um, explicit mention of international humanitarian law or even international human rights or, or human rights. It may deal more explicitly with um, the proper use of a particular item um, and it may deal with a number of other things. But I know Larry will have the ability to, to expound on that um, with much greater expertise and, and depth um, than I can lay out right here, even in the report. So, um, so I'll look forward to that. Um, and then finally, the, the last sort of set of recommendations or maybe one or two recommendations really deals with participation and transparency. As I mentioned sort of at the outset, there are stakeholders affected by these transactions who do have no voice in the process. Um, it is a recommendation that has been made before my time um, and seems to persist uh, through policy debate and uh, after policy debate um, that you, you must find better ways to capture the interests and represent the interests of people who stand to be most affected by these transactions. Whether that's civil society organizations or otherwise, some way of involving people um, in their own lives and the outcomes um, that they may be staring at is a really important part of this process. Um, I think from no sort of, uh, sort of malintent on behalf of the government, it can be difficult to know exactly how and where to do that and, and how to do it successfully and constructively. And I think it falls in part on those of us outside of government to come up with channels and, and ways that we can do it effectively because I do think it, uh, it's worth mentioning. And as an ancillary sort of uh, related issue, I think there are, I won't go so far as to call them concerns, but observations we have about um, disparity and kind of the what is available and transparent and publicly available versus, you know, what elements of the transactions or the processes or the, um, the decisions that are not publicly available. And I will say, there is, there is a lot out there for those people that are willing to, to spend the time uh, reading through arcane regulations and manuals and policies on the Defense Security Cooperation Agency's website or uh, the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs discloses quite a few public reports, most of them I think required by Congress, but nonetheless they're good and they're full of content and worth looking at. Um, there are still some gaps that we know uh, in the report that we think if filled would um, you know, not only serve the interests of civilians uh, who may be affected, but 
um, serve, I think, American democratic institutions and, and quite frankly serve the policy, stated policy interests um, of the United States. So that's kind of my spiel. I hope you have time to read the report, um, but I'm looking forward to, uh, to the discussion and, and thank you all again for coming and thanks Rachel for hosting. Yeah, no, thank you, thank you Dan. And I think as you were talking, I was thinking of um, ways in which I could exercise the moderator's prerogative by providing my own commentary. Um, but I think you raised a, a couple of, well, you raised a lot of interesting points. A couple points that I would like to, to respond to, and that is sort of the difference in the way in which the US treats armed transfer decisions than other countries do. And in other words, you know, we don't have a checklist, per se, where we say, oh, if this risk happens, then the answer is no. It's more of a, we're going to take a list, a, a group of factors, criteria, and we're going to look at them, and we're going to balance them. And on balance, we're going to make a decision based on the facts that we have at the time and the circumstances um, that we're uh, working or operating under. And that may look different for country X than it does for country Y. So it may look different for Nigeria than it does with Belize, or it may look different for the Philippines and Indonesia, right? It's going to depend on, on what's happening. And I think that that allows some flexibility in the system, but it also allows the possibility of some of, of the potential risk mm -hmm. that we're talking about. And when we think about um, if US made or supplied weapons, um, are used to cause some kind of human suffering, or they fall into the wrong hands. There are risks for the United States itself. There are risks um, from a reputational point of view. There's risks from a, um, a legal or a moral point of view, but also a reputational and um, strategic mm -hmm. point of view that I think are important. And those risks have profound impacts on what arms transfer decisions happen down the road. Because if we are contributing to um, the longevity of conflicts or creating new conflicts or responses to conflicts, right? All of those then have an impact on future decisions and what factors we weigh on balance. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's worth saying. And I also think this end-use monitoring that, you, that we mentioned in the report and that you mentioned here also is important because end-use monitoring is not things that happen necessarily just after the sale occurs. Right? There are checks and, and um, monitoring that occur before a sale takes place, during the sort of sale process, and then after a sale happens. And all of those provide um, entree points into affecting the sale and its continuation and its potential consequences down the road. And so there's lots of entree points, there's lots of flexibility in the system. It's just utilizing, I think, all of those processes to ensure that we have sort of responsible and as, as little risk as, as possible. So with that, I think this conversation of risk lends itself very well to my friend, Dr. Larry Lewis. Um, and so I'm, I would love for you to share your views and experiences with the group, and then we'll, um, well, I'm sure I'll have more to say, but then we'll, uh, we'll open it up to some questions as well. Great, hopefully that's working. So it's great to be here. And I should make a, a few caveats up front. So, so first of all, I am not an author of the report, so I don't want to grab credit for uh, for that work. Um, um, also, uh, I've I've been in a number of places: a think tank, State Department. I was in the Joint Staff in the U.S. military for for quite a while. Um, the so let me make sure I get this right. So, my comments and participation 
represent my own views <laughs> and are not regarded to be representing my employer or past employers or any of their sponsors. So, okay, <laughs> right. So today has been a successful day um, to, to make that point. Okay, so anyway, so, um, so uh, I, I've kind of worked on three big issues over, over my time at the State Department, at the Joint Staff and, 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 and elsewhere. Uh, one was trying to improve the conduct of U.S. operations. So, so the U.S. was in Afghanistan, was in Iraq. Um, there was an advisory effort to try to improve the effectiveness of those, uh, those operations. And so, and that was kind of led through the Joint Staff and I was, I was leading a number of those efforts. We'd actually go forward, work with, with um, uh, Petraeus, Odierno, whoever was the commanding general, and try to help in real time help improve the conduct of operations and help them be more effective. So, that, so, so one is sort of this operational advising piece. The second thing that I've worked on a lot is um, security assistance. So you know, security assistance is an important part of US, US policy. Um, we have uh, kind of mixed success with, with, uh, with our, our security assistance efforts. Some have been very successful, we think. Columbia is a good example. Um, some, like Mali, less, less successful. So trying to learn, okay, what worked and what didn't work and how can we get better? So that's sort of the second piece. And then the third piece was working on civilian harms. So as part of my operational advising, I was asked to go to Afghanistan and help advise US forces that were struggling to reduce civilian casualties. And we learned a lot through that experience. And, and I did one and kept on asking me, asked to do more and more uh, it turned out a lot of what we thought uh, about what caused civilian casualties was wrong. So we, we learned a lot about what actually are the real drivers of civilian casualties, how can we reduce civilian harm in operations, um, and that gave us lots of insight. And so you take sort of those three, three uh, areas, and the cross, uh, the cross area of all those three is this issue. Uh, so I'm, I, I'm very excited about uh, this topic. And I think there's a lot that we can do uh, to, to, uh, to, to move it forward. Um, I, I have notes just because I don't want to take five hours uh, getting excited about all the different dimensions. Yeah, good. So, um, so, um, so first of all, security assistance is, de is definitely something that, that involves our values and principles. Um, but it's also a strategic issue for the United States. So the United States has a number of real incentives to make security systems work. Uh, we have, of course, the financial incentives that, that go kind of both ways. First, we get to sell stuff. Second, we don't have to deploy US troops. So that's sort of, sort of good. Uh, but we also have a vested interest in partners being effective. Uh, there, there are real incentives for partners that are sort of involved in a conflict already for them to take ownership of things themselves and for us to help them to take that responsibility and to be more effective. Uh, and some of, the, some of the good news stories we've seen is, is where that happens, where we sort of help the partner to be more effective, more responsible. We got, kind of get to step back a little bit, and it's a more sustainable solution. Uh, at the same time, it doesn't always work uh, as, as well as we'd like. Uh, and one, one key reason is you have heavy-handed tactics, you have human rights abuses, 
you know, lots of civilian harm, and those things can cause grievances, and they can uh, create a wedge between the, the government and the population, and, and actually exacerbate the conflict. So it is to U.S. interests, you know, both is U.S. interest for us to, to help solve this problem. It's also to the partner force interest to solve this problem. So it really is, it's a win-win it's a, it's a for us to try to solve this problem um, from a strategic perspective. So, um, so, so, so what do we do? How do we go forward? And, and what I found as we, as we talked about specific instances of this issue in the State Department when I, where I was, when I was there, um, we had some really interesting conversations and, and some different, uh, different opinions on the way to go forward. And, and what I found is actually I'm gonna go step back from my time working with, with the government and with armed conflict and go back to my previous experience as a chemist. So I used to, I used to walk around in a, like a white lab coat and smell really bad. And, um, so, um, so, but th there's, so um, if you go to the laboratory, so that you, you go to the laboratory and they have lots of chemicals, they also have scales uh, because you have to measure things sometimes very accurately. And they had two different kinds of scales. One was sort of a digital, they call it a bench scale. So it just sits on the bench. Whatever you, whatever you have you want to weigh, you put on it and it tells you how much it weighs. They also have other kinds of scales that sort of look like uh, Lady Liberty in, the, in front, of, front of the uh, Department of Justice that with the two, kind of the balance scale. Uh, so you, know, you put something on here and then you put something on the other and you try to make it, make it um, line up. So, so what does that have to do with security assistance in this topic? Well, it's actually very relevant uh, because it has to do with how we balance benefit and risk. So when, when we work with a partner force, um, so we may be providing arms sales. We may be providing intelligence or operational support or advising support. So those are things that you can argue increase our legal and reputational risk or even culpability. So you put all those things on there, okay, for the, for the bench scale. But how about if we go over and we try to promote human rights or we go over and we try to say, look, we notice you're killing lots of civilians. There are better ways to do things. So under this model, you also put that on there. So everything you do, every way you touch your ally, kind of goes on and increases risk. That's one model. The other model is the balance scale. So in the balance scale model, there's the operational support, arms sales kinds of things. So we provide tanking support, intelligence, weapons. But then we can do other things that counterbalance those things and counterbalance the risk and the reputational um, risk. Uh, and so in that model, you sort of think about, okay, so what are some things, concrete things we can do to kind of counterbalance that risk? So the way you think about security assistance and managing that risk really affects how you approach this problem. If, you, if you're a balanced scale kind of person, I'm mean, sorry, if you're a bench scale kind of person, you say, if, if they're getting messy, we just want to back off and just stop everything. Uh, but if you're a balance scale kind of person, then you say, well, okay, we're having problems. What more can I do to counterbalance the, this risk and, and positively influence my partner? So, uh, okay, so I'm done with my chemistry spiel. Uh, 
But so, so I would argue, I mean, talk, talking to a bunch of lawyers, and I think actually this would be a fun separate sidebar discussion. You know, which, what's your view of the universe um, in, in terms of risk? But uh, I think from a legal perspective, you can argue that the balance scale is actually a, a, a better representation of, of both law and reputational risk. Uh, and so what that means and, and is we have to think creatively about the counterbalances. Uh, and so the, I think this report is, is really a great report because it points out that there are, you know, so in, in a balance scale, you, you can either do less of, of the sort of operational support, and that helps risk, or you can do the counterbalances. Um, and you point out both categories. I think your report is very heavy on how to stop things, right? If you're concerned about things, how to stop. You kind of point out that there are areas of counterbalances. I think there's a lot more we can do uh, in brainstorming what specific counterbalances that can be done. Um, and I will point out, so back when I was at State, uh, we, we, we issued the uh, executive order on civilian casualties, and that was in July uh, 2016. And that included a number of, of policy commitments uh, that the U.S. made. Uh, they generally uh, just talk about these are commitments that the U.S. makes for U.S. operations, so combat operations, but there, there is an, there's one policy commitment that says we are going to work with our partners to help them to reduce civilian casualties in their operations. So we actually have, starting 2016, we have a policy commitment. Um, and in fact, at State, um, in several of the bureaus, we then did a number, uh, a brainstorming exercise to look at specific actionable things, concrete things we could do. Um, so that sort of draft list is, exists, uh, but it's not currently being uh, implemented. So that's definitely something we could grow in. Um, so, um, so again, and just to reinforce kind of my first point, so U.S. efforts to do this, um, you know, first of all, they, they are achievable, uh, and maybe we can talk in kind of questions about you know, some of the early efforts that, that we started to do at the State Department. Um, uh, and, and, it's, and it's not, it, it is definitely a, a question of our values and principles, but it's also a strategic issue. We want, this is good for U.S. interests, it's also good for our partners uh, to do this. Uh, and finally, I'll just add, since you, you said you were hoping I would talk about it. So, um, customizable. So the, the, the comment on customizable, uh, tailorable working with partners. And so my first experience on working on civilian harm with military forces was largely with the U.S. So going to Afghanistan, we had, we had um, some real concerns about civilian harm uh, in, in ISAF, but it was mostly U.S. Uh, operations because we're, it was mostly U.S. forces. Um, so what we found, what, what I found was, uh, was that there were all these ideas about why civilian casualties were happening. You know, for some, some people say, oh, it's an IHL violation. You know, if you just fix the IHL violations, then civilian harm goes to zero. Well, that's actually not the case. Um, clearly, the, the data shows that's not the case. Uh, and then there are other ideas about, oh, you know, civilian casualties happen because of X or Y, so we just need to make these operational adjustments. They actually were trying to do that in 2007 and 2008, and 
they, they, were, they were wrong. Uh, mis they had misconceptions about why it happened. So if you actually understand why it happens, you can make it get better. So we started introducing kind of data evidence-driven uh, operational measures in 2010, and sure enough, numbers started going down. Uh, then we found in 2011, they were sort of creeping up again, and we had to do some different things. So you have to be sort of adaptive, and you also have to really be paying close attention to the operational details. So it's not, it's not just a matter of, you know, don't kill civilians. It's actually, it's a very complicated uh, process. Um, and then uh, we did do some advising to the Saudi military, uh, and you know, basically took some of those same lessons and, and went to them and applied some of the same lessons, but also being um, learning about what they did and, and what they did differently, and they had different kinds of, of uh, challenges. Some of the challenges were actually the same, some were different, and so you sort of have to pay attention to the specifics of the case, and then the solutions that you offer need to be tailored, and uh, so we'll definitely need to do that. A two finger, I will give you the two finger response. I don't want to deprive Rachel of the prerogative of the panelist slash moderator here, but I just want to respond quickly to something on the scales metaphor and the reason perhaps why in the report it may seem as though we are emphasizing, anticipating and perhaps, you know, cutting things off instead of exercising all of those positive um, sort of things that you could do. So first, I think in the scale analogy, it's useful and I feel weird debating Larry because it's like sort of I should just be listening. But um, I, I think as long as you're dealing with um, homogenous variables, right? So the, what I do to put on the other side of the scale must be related to what you put on the other side of the scale. And so I think sometimes in policy it's sort of like, well, we're willing to accept a certain kind of risk of negative externalities to the public um, in the affected country as long as we're doing this other thing that is entirely unrelated to the first, right? So I think, and I, I don't think yeah. you were suggesting that's the case, right. but I do think it's right. worth pointing out in the analogy that they have to be related to one another. So what I put on the other side yeah. of the scale must counterbalance. It shouldn't be you know, a, a set of other goods that I provide. And the reason I say that is because that is not atypical in US policy, right? Mm -hmm. And it works in both directions. Sometimes uh, we run it the other direction, which is we impose a sanction on the basis of something that's unrelated to the sanction we're applying. Mm -hmm. um, and you can find lots of examples of that. The other thing I just want to mention is you have to be sure that what you think you are exerting on the other side of the scale is having the effect that you want to believe it is having. And with, maybe this is why I tended towards, um, you know, in the sort of concept of, two concepts of liberty here, like the negative obligations. Because I do, I do think that, and for no fault of the US government, the strong incentive is to overstate the value of your positive interventions and understate the potential value of not doing something. And I think until that point at which I and anybody else can be confident that the intervention we offer up as a counterbalance to the risk that you described will actually effectively get at the problem, um, I think my, my tendency is to lean in the other direction. But that is not the same as saying there aren't many things we could do. And I hope that the report suggests that as a function of the analysis, which includes, I hope, some of the you know, customized analysis and, and kind of identification of the problem sources, uh, that would offer both negative and positive options. So I think, listening to, to what Larry was saying, you know, this is not a new set of challenges. This is not something that just appeared when the Trump administration um, 
came into office. And so, um, you know, I think the U.S. government is trying to do some of these good things that, that you mentioned, Larry, that they started um, even prior to your tenure, but that there was, there was an, an awareness that, you know, I think as I think Dan said it, you know, we don't go in and say, well, let's kill as many children and civilians as we can with this arms sale. That's not sort of the motivating factor for arms sales. So there's a recognition that we have a challenge, there's a recognition that we have a problem. It's not new. I wish someone from the U.S. government was here on the panel to talk about some of those things that are being done at a very practical and tangible level. We'll sort of try and, and fill in as, as we can, but obviously we can't speak for them. But I think this notion of, um, you know, having tailored approaches is a positive one. I think, though, we do need to figure out how to institutionalize that approach, right, to have those tailored approaches, that we don't want to necessarily a one-size-fits-all. We don't need the same sort of risk mitigation measures for the United Kingdom as we might for the Philippines or as we might for Nigeria or Saudi Arabia or Egypt or Bahrain, right? There's different circumstances in each of those, but it's how do you sort of holistically put um, those measures and those processes and procedures in place. The other thing that sort of concerns me is, and I think it's a growing trend, is the sort of militarization of foreign policy, that our, our entree point, our discussion point, our development of partnerships with our allies is very much based on our defense relationship, on providing them with weapons and using that to foster uh, joint operations or um, establishing areas of common concern. And so what I would like to see is sort of that balance and maybe a shift, maybe the, the scales are a little bit more weighted towards diplomacy and political engagement instead of the default being the defense relationship. I think it, you know, it's very understandable in the time and place in which we are living, that that is sort of the default. But I think it is, and we've seen it, I would say, in the last 15 years in particular, sort of the, um, the lessening of the influence of the State Department, whether it's on arms transfer decisions or in other places, and the rise of sort of the, and it's not just a budget issue, although certainly having sort of a disproportionate budget makes uh, an impact, but whether it's resources or personnel, just the approach and the turn to sort of defense relationships to foster those, those diplomatic and, and um, foreign policy ones. So that's something that's, I think, larger, maybe it's the next conversation that we have on this stage, but I think it's also worth raising that as you're thinking about these scales and whatever kind of scale, who knew we would be talking about science today, um, if you're talking about the scales, you know, what you're putting on your scale, whether you're balancing or just measuring, right, those, those are important factors. Um, maybe the three of us have talked a little bit, maybe I've talked too much. I want to make sure that we have an opportunity to hear from those of you here. I know we have serious experts in the room who I certainly look up to on these subjects, and so I want to give people an opportunity to ask a question or raise an issue that perhaps we haven't touched on here. Um, we have mics. Yes, we have mic, a mic in the back of the room. We have two mics in the back of the room. Um, if you could, A, hold it straight so that it doesn't give you feedback, but B, introduce yourself um, so that we just have a context of where you are coming from. That would be great. And I will open it up. For, we have a question right here on the front, and then we'll go to Jacob in the back and then over here on the side. 
Thank you. My name is Brian, and I served as a government relations fellow at Amnesty International USA till December of this year, although my remarks are in a personal capacity today. Um, and just wanted to thank you for setting out a progressive reform agenda for arms export controls that really puts the minimization of harm to civilians at the center of the agenda. But as you know, um, and as I documented the recent post on just security, there is a an arms reform agenda currently being led by the National Security Council, which aims to weaken the arms export controls in the name of improving economic competitiveness of US defense and gun firms. What the reforms have been underpublicized to date is reported to include efforts to rewrite the US munitions list to remove guns and to move them onto the commerce control list instead, efforts to rewrite the drone export policy to make it more easy to sell militarized drones, um, efforts to rewrite PPD 27, setting out the conventional arms transfer policy, and perhaps most troubling of all, um, efforts to rewrite the international traffic in arms regulation. And what we hope that reforms will result in progressive reforms like those you propose in this report today being taken up. The processes so far, which have been very untransparent, appear to be giving more input to the defense and gun industry. And I just wanted to reflect that over the last decade, there's really been an extraordinary coalition to build the, um, to create an arms trade treaty. Today, it appears that treaty is under attack. The gains we've made with that coalition are being lost and the coalition is dissipated. Last year, we saw recent sales of arms um, by the Trump administration of $80.7 billion um, for the first 11 months of 2017, including the sales of US arms, um, in bombs and fighters to the Saudi coalition is bombing Yemen, including Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. Uh, the Trump administration has also proposed sales to El Salvador, um, Turkey, the Philippines, countries with problematic human rights records, gun sales to the military forces. Um, and Trump finally personally linked arms sales to trade imbalances in Vietnam on his most recent trip to Asia, where he signaled to the Vietnamese that if they were to buy arms, he might um, not look so much at the trade deficit. Um, and, he might, and this might reduce the US-Vietnamese trade deficit. So against the backdrop, I have two questions really for the uh, panel. Um, first is, what is the implications of guns coming off ITAR and onto the com commerce control list? Did your report and recommendations address this? Also, I would like to hear from Larry about this. It seems to me at least that Whichever model you're using, the measures or the scale model, the thumb is being pressed very firmly in the, on the scale that says sell, and there's been no cases in the last year that says don't sell. So secondly, where is the coalition now to stop the weakening of arms export controls? What can we do about this? We're going to get your heavy sighs and your breathing. Just leave it on. <laughs> Conventional arms transfer policy, export control reform, and, uh, and uh, the export policy related to uh, um, unmanned aerial, armed un unmanned aerial systems. Um, all of those are kind of separate and distinct policy issues that you raised that have been dealt with. I would quickly note that um, these initiatives, of course, are not new. Um, they were undertaken by the, the former administration. Um, 
which is not to say that there aren't attendant risks uh, that have carried into the new administration and new levels of emphasis being placed on, I think to your point, some of the commercial benefits that arise from them. Um, just very quickly, I'll mention that this, the scope of the report excluded um, really because of, of bandwidth, but also just to keep some discipline on, on civics role, um, you know, small arms and light weapons for the time being, although we haven't um, excluded the possibility of taking that up. Not wanting to speak on behalf of, of people like, you know, Brittany Benowitz and others who have done a lot of really great work on this. And if you haven't read her work on, on export control reform and others, maybe security assistance monitor, others that have written on this, um, I think there are valid concerns um, that have been re represented in the public uh, discourse that remain uh, when it comes to the shifting of certain items from um, state control to commerce control. Um, but uh, they'd probably be better to take up sort of what some of those risks are. I know some of them have to deal with, with oversight. Um, and just the sheer rate, the, the force of the regulatory regime and the, the controls that are available to the government uh, once those, um, those items leave. Um, but it was outside of the scope of this report, so I'll leave that alone. I will say uh, we are watching, I think as a community, wherever your interests lie, um, for news about the conventional arms transfer policy and for news about um, the sort of the drones export policy, I'm just using a colloquial term, I'm sure a lot of people would kill me for saying drones, but um, and not having seen any um, you know, sort of recent news about what it will actually contain, I will say we'll be looking at the contents if they're, if they're made publicly available. And I have not yet given up hope in the many good people I know within the government who will um, argue for at least the preservation of some emphasis on features of the last policy that, that, um, that dealt with um, you know, civilian harm at a minimum. Uh, and human rights more broadly. So uh, I'll leave it at that for now unless you want to comment on UAV policy, but then I know Larry had uh, a question directed at him too. Yeah, so. No, I'll, the only thing I would add is that the export reform process began in the Obama administration. Was not, I think it'll be finalized in the Trump administration, but that is not a new um, approach. I think personally I was very surprised to see a new conventional arms transfer policy being considered by this administration since it's like two and a half years since we had a new conventional arms transfer policy after a 19-year uh, hold on a new policy. So it seems a little, for me, it was, seemed a little premature to suddenly throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and say we need to start again without really noting how the policy had been implemented, what potential challenges were, where potential fixes would be made. But obviously, I'm not in charge of what the policy decisions are made. And the other thing I would mention is that the Arms Trade Treaty was actually begun during the George W. Bush administration. And so regardless of the rhetoric that you hear, this was an initiative that was, um, that began under that administration, that was worked on by that administration, was finalized during the Obama administration, but certainly has its roots longstanding, consistent with the values and principles that Larry mentioned that are at the very core of U.S. arms export control policy, um, irrespective of who is in power, the longstanding Arms Export Control Act, the Foreign Assistance Act, et cetera. So again, these are not new um, initiatives. The approach perhaps is new. The focus on different aspects are new. But I, along with Dan, I think am hopeful that common sense will prevail, that protections of human rights and IHL standards, that the, the long-standing values and principles that exist in U.S. law will remain, and that we won't just have a focus on economic um, opportunities for arms sales, that it is a arms transfer policy. It is not an arms trade policy, and I think that is a very significant distinction. Your transfer process is different than your trade deficit or your, your trade policy in general. So those are my two cents. I'll turn it Okay. And so to, to comment on the, this, the scale analogy in light of sort of a, an increase in, in arms sales to different partners, I, I guess I would go back to you know, you, the U.S. policy commitment and the executive order I mentioned, which is, says, you know, we're, we're, this is going to be 
this is going to be a policy commitment for the U.S. to focus on avoiding civilian casualties. I would say if we are selling more arms and if we're selling arms to partners that are less experienced with the effective use of force, then those are, those are both sources of risk. And so that, that should, according to that policy commitment, that should warrant even more efforts to address those risks. Uh, just, okay, just for example, providing armed drones, to use that word again, uh, armed drones to different partners that, that haven't used them before. You know, the U.S. uses, you know, Predator, Reaper, um, and what, what we've seen operationally, so I've gotten to kind of see some of the operational effects of these platforms. They're very capable. They're also very challenging. They're very complex. The, the, the coordination mechanisms, the intelligence exploitation and the coordination is very, very hard, even for the U.S., and we're very well trained. So imagining some of these other forces using them effectively without mistakes, uh, it would probably behoove us to, to give additional attention to help reduce those risks. That's great. Um, Jacob in the back, and then we'll go to you. Uh, Jacob Marks, OSF. Uh, first of all, thank you for a great report and a great presentation and uh, discussion. Um, I have two questions. Uh, and the first, uh, Dr. Lewis, to sort of use your framing of the scale. Um, even if some of the things that uh, others talked about, sort of, even if the arms trade was uh, turned down to zero, there'd still be other things that were in this sort of uh, options that could be put on one side of the scale or the other, like ISR. I mean, you could buy weapons from anyone, but that's a competitive advantage that the United States has to offer. So I'd be curious about your thoughts on how that, you know, very important military capability fits into this holistic picture, too. Some people um, have talked about this uh, increase in arms sales from the U.S. that the administration is pushing as a risk of weapons uh, falling into the wrong hands, to, you know, making sure that we don't inadvertently supply our enemies, and I would uh, be interested in your thoughts on the risk of that happening were there to be more arms transfers. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sure. So for, for ISR, so I've actually written on this if you want more information. I, I've actually written something that talks about this. Um, I, so so my, my view is that any kind of operational support, uh, you support, support to the conduct of operations, falls on one side. So it's not just arms sales, it's, it's ISR, it's tanking support. I, so a wide range of, of issues that help, uh, help promote their combat operations. Uh, and, and then there are the counterweight kind of things, how we help them to be more responsible. So. Um, the second piece was on diversion, transfer, mm -hmm. uh, unanticipated. Yeah, I mean, I think, <coughs> um, Couple of thoughts. Uh, first, just quickly to footnote to what what, what Larry said, um, I think we the focus of the report um, to the extent it's relevant. Um, we tried to just look at the actual items themselves only because, again, of kind of scope issues and, and just sort of scope of analysis discipline, um, but also because the processes don't all, aren't always as naturally organically coupled as we might like in the development of policies. In other, case, in other words, for those that don't know, we may have transactions that have been underway for a long time and in train um, that are taking place entirely separate from conversations around some of the other forms of support. But I think your point is really well taken and should be considered and maybe deserve more attention in the report itself. Um, on the issue of diversion and transfer, um, 
this is another issue that I hope we can evaluate more fully um, going forward. And there are actually uh, a number of other groups that, that have looked at the unintended consequences, namely um, diversion to armed non-state groups. I mean, uh, Human Rights Watch has done amazing documentation work in Iraq um, and elsewhere um, where you do end up with you know, groups using um, you know, American-made manufactured weapons. I think to do, a good, to do that service um, in, in a similar kind of way, we really need to look at some of the variables that are most related to that risk. I do think that, that state and DOD do tend to focus on that kind of more heavily in a sense only because it combines a kind of security risk with some of the risks we're describing here uh, because they don't want ISIS to end up with, you know, with rocket launchers or I'm using terribly in, inaccurate on scientific terms. But, um, so I think it actually naturally kind of gets probably more attention than other kinds of risks. Um, but I, I do think that, um, that the consequences of civilians are, are potentially no less grave. Um, and so it's, it is worthy of further, further analysis. But I also know that a lot of work has been done on this, but worthy of mention. But it goes back to that balance issue, right? Like, you know, yes, we know that there's a risk of diversion, but that counterterrorism priority is higher, is more important in well, this factory, right? Yeah. I mean, it, there, it doesn't mean, though, that you don't then mitigate that risk diversion or risk of retransfer. And, that and I also think adding the issue of consequences to those who don't have a vote in the process to the concerns you've got. Am I concerned that there's going to be a diversion of a weapon to a terrorist group which then threatens my partner and maybe America troops? Yes. Am I also concerned that you know, Shia militias or ISIS or you know, uh, armed group X is going to use those same weapons against civilians in the same country? I think that that should be added to. I mean, what that does, I think, is it affects, in some sense, the the way that you think about how you monitor the use of the weapon once it's been transferred, there is an attendant risk to that, which is, of course, we start to frame everything in terms of our non-state groups and terrorist organizations instead of actually looking at state responsibilities and state obligations, which is a totally separate discussion. Uh, Bill, Hold on, I'm going to wait for the mic so the people at home can hear all the important things you say. Uh, yeah, Bill Hartung, Center for National Policy. Um, great report, great panel. Um, I wanted to look at one particular deal and how it relates to what we've been talking about. Um, late in the Obama administration, they suspended a sale of precision-guided munitions to Saudi Arabia because of concerns about civilian casualties in their airstrikes, after having tried things like help with targeting and so forth. Um, so one was, do you have any insight into how the internal discussions uh, that led to that, and also that led the Trump administration to reverse course? Uh, and related to that, there's a lot of front-loaded information about what we're selling, uh, who's building it, what it costs, but it's much harder to find the other end. When was it delivered? How was it used? So even in a case like this munitions deal, you know, do we know when will it be delivered? Is it going to have an impact in the next six months? Is it longer? That seems to be a missing element in terms of evaluating impact and also transparency for the public to decide what the consequences of these things might be. So I guess those two points. Sure, let's take two for the price of one. All right. I actually have two questions, sorry. That's <laughs> 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 uh, great. Four for the price of one. Um, Kate Kaiser, Win Without War. Um, thanks for this great report and timely discussion. Um, so one question for you, Larry, is in your counterbalancing analysis um, or example is, you know, when in the case of Saudi Arabia and its conduct in Yemen, um, there's been three years now of 
trying this counterbalancing approach, trying to mitigate the risk that we're seeing, but I'm wondering at what threshold then do you say this approach is no longer working and what do we do now? And so just if you could respond to that. Um, and then one question in the report about um, how the U.S. government does not agree with uh, the ICRC's analysis of Common Article One, um, and just why you think that they do have that analysis and that they do don't agree with it, and also like how could we possibly change that? Because I feel it's used as a workaround to kind of get away from these discussions of these are actually unlawful airstrikes, for example, in Yemen, um, and we really need to be rethinking our policy in those types of scenarios. Thank you. All right, I'm going to let Larry answer okay. your questions first. Sure, sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's easy. Um, okay, so the, this, this, I like to call it the Saudi experience. So, um, so the, Saudis, uh, the Saudis started um, their operations in Yemen, and within about six months, there was consternation within the U.S. government about uh, negative second-order effects, you know, hitting, hitting, civilian objects, civilian casualties, and so forth. And so there was some brainstorming about what, what could we have done. Um, so I was one of the options, so I went over and uh, was working with the, the Saudis, uh, putting forward best practices that the US had developed on protecting civilians. Um, and we also had sort of a US military advisory group, although honestly, Civilian protection was not in their mandate. That really wasn't something that they were working on. Um, that's something that we can, there are lots of lessons from this experience. Like we can definitely do it better. Um, so what we found is, um, so I went forward, started working with our US military partners to sort of help the conduct uh, of the campaign. And we also had, this is really important um, to, to doing this moving forward. Um, what I like to call operational end-use monitoring. So it's not the end-use monitoring is the thing still where it was, but actually how are they using it operationally? What are the operational effects of, the, of these weapons and other things, capabilities that we're providing? So we started doing that sort of in this informal way because it had never really been done before. Um, and it was difficult because we didn't really have the tools, we didn't have the resources, um, but we were trying to do it with the best we could. And so with sort of that ad hoc effort, we are trying to, to um, both affect what they did, influence them positively, and then sort of evaluate, are we being effective at all, or are we just, you know, just trying to make ourselves feel better? And, and so what, um, what we found is in, in the first few months, we saw a difference. Uh, it wasn't perfect, and honestly, it's not fair to expect perfection. I mean, even when I was over in Afghanistan, helping the U.S. and most you know, really professional force, it took time to turn the ship. Uh, it really does. It takes a long time to actually implement and change and see the fruit of, of operational refinements. But we were seeing um, changes uh, to changes to procedures. We're seeing operational changes uh, based on some metrics that we developed. Uh, and it was, it was hopeful. And then, um, then we had the ceasefire uh, in March. And so things mostly stopped. And so everyone just relaxed. Hey, it's over. Uh, we pulled the US military advisors out. Uh, the Saudis were sort of doing other things. And then things started up again in August. And we did not cover down uh, like we were before. 
So things got really bad again, and it's not surprising. I mean, that's sort of what you'd expect if you, you know, if, because we, were, we weren't really trying very hard to sustain the things that, that they were doing. Uh, we pulled a lot of the bootstraps out that we, that we had before. So we saw progress, laps kind of stopped covering, and then things got bad. And then this is where the scale thing matters because there was a this policy discussion and they're like, well, look, you know, they're bad again, and so we, we, just, we just give up. We're going we're gonna to stop and we're going to stop uh, this arms transfer as a, as, a, um, yeah, as a sign of our discontent. And we really stopped trying to influence them at that point. Um, and so that, that's where I think you know, that it really matters. Is, is, is it, is a, is it you know, we don't we wouldn't do anything? Or you know, even if we say, look, we're really concerned about these things, we're going to put a hold on these, we could still be working with them. And they were asking, by the way, they were asking for us to help them again. They knew. I mean, even when they just started up next week, they were like, we would like help again, and sort of reputationally, the reputational risk, we're like, we're concerned about the perception uh, of, of us working with the Saudi. So, so I would say it was, a, it was kind of a failed experiment in some ways because, you know, first of all, we only did it very episodically. And, you know, it's nice to think that I can fix things, but, you know, just a couple trips over to, to, uh, to work with a partner is not is not enough. Uh, we, we need a little more than that. And we also need to be more sustained. Um, and so. Well, and the solution, I think, to these challenges is not all on your shoulders, right? It can't be Larry Lewis will just go in and save the day on every time there's a potential risk of, a, of an arms sale, right? As great as, great as you are. <laughs> as good a work of you, as you do, we can't have the fate of the U.S. government and its arms transfer decisions be dependent on an individual, right? It has to be, I think, as you say, more sustained and institutionalized and less ad hoc. Mm -hmm. And until that happens, I think we're going to keep seeing, um, you know, the same kinds of issues, right, not just in the Saudi context, but, you know, will pop up in other in other contexts as well. Um, do you want to take just a, Just a I mean, just only because I, I, I do think we have slightly different tacks on this. And, and Larry lived it, and um, I lived on the margins of it as a, as a low-rank civil servant um, in the same office, but somehow lower. <laughs> but the, 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 and the, only, the only differentiation I want to point out is just I, I do think there's room. And, and I think this took place in, in that case, or maybe, maybe should have taken place earlier in later stages. And maybe we can not even talk about Saudi in terms of a generalizable principle, but there there. There are fixers and people who can make things better over time with sustained engagement and with a, a modicum of, of interest on the other side. If that path is very long and the consequences that you're seeing come up, um, even as you are undertaking that that intervention, become you know loom much larger than ever before. Have you deprived yourself of the visibility on other potential political options at your disposal, and have you have you exhausted those? Um, have you deprived yourself in some sense of some of those because of your choice to intervene? I mean, there are just, I think, a range of complicated variables. And I'm not suggesting Larry wasn't fully aware of those or didn't participate in those conversations. And I do think there's more complexity here than we're representing. But um, but there also, we were talking a little bit about these. This, someone asked a great question of, like, at what, at what threshold do you decide, like, it's just not working? Because in addition to the reputational risk, there's also the, 
the dilution of your capacity to make change because people understand that you're willing to stick around forever um, and be fed kibbles when they're not really willing to take it to the full measure. Because at the end of the day, if they want to take it to the full measure, I would argue there's plenty of space. Yeah, can I, can I add just one thought? Yeah, yeah so, so uh, yeah, I definitely um, don't want to mis misconstrue this. I think the way forward is a comprehensive approach. And a comprehensive approach ties together advising efforts, diplomatic efforts, you know, relationships. I mean, there are many things we could have done that we just didn't because we just sort of said, we're just going to send this guy over and hopefully that'll fix everything. But really, these problems stem from systemic issues that cross, you know, they're, they're really complex military issues within the institution. And so you, you need to solve, solve it in a number of different ways. And in, if we're not deliberate about trying to match you know, the, the, the tailored solutions to where, to where they need to be fixed, uh, then we're not going to be nearly as effective as we could be. So looking at the time, um, why don't we take a, the last couple questions together. I know we have one here in the front and then um, on the side. We'll take them both together so that we don't run out of time. Sounds good. Uh, I'm Susan Notar from the State Department, um, and it's great to see Dan and Larry again. Um, I have a question about arms transfer, conditions on arms transfers, which seems to me that are it's kind of different than the metaphor for the weight analysis because if you can put a condition on the first place and you're willing to do that, um, you've already perhaps kind of done the balancing analysis. But what might be creative arguments for conditions on arms transfers that would be effective um, and given all the pressure that policymakers are, are under, and Larry, you mentioned the fact that, it, or I think Dan, that it's difficult for an ambassador to change uh, tack after the arms sale has already been undertaken. And there's always kind of the argument that, well, if the U.S. doesn't undertake an arms transfer, somebody else will jump in, whether it's Russia or China or Iran. So I'd like to hear a bit about that. And then can you just pass the microphone oh, down to, yeah, to Thank you. Wonderful. Caroline Dormany with the Cato Institute. Um, I also have a question with kind of the scale analogy. I do really like it, but um, it seems that trying to counterbalance risks associated with an arms sale right now seems kind of static and in a singular point in time, whereas these weapons will have an impact over their entire service life. So I was wondering if y'all offer any recommendations on how to mitigate risk in, in sort of a longer term time horizon. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Unless does someone else have a really pressing, because this is probably your last chance to get it in. <laughs> you can engage with Dan <laughs> on Twitter, me on Twitter, Stimson on Twitter, Civic on Twitter. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I'm going first only because of the direction we're sitting on the panel, because I'm sure Larry has uh, really great feedback on this and in, in his own views. Um, Susan, great question, and good to see you too. On the issue of conditionality, uh, we, we deal with conditionality a bit in the report, but frame it slightly different and kind of disaggregate it. Um, my instinctive preference um, is to actually treat it as both kind of 
selectivity through prerequisites, and then conditionality once a sale has been taken. And what I mean by that, to kind of make it less abstract, is if there's the way to kind of get away from the stigma of conditionality by looking at sort of prerequisite qualifications for the transfer or the purchase of certain kinds of items at certain stages, that seems to me a more creative or perhaps politically palatable way of doing things that's more consistent with the status quo, the way things are already done. So if we can inform the way that the State Department and Defense are considering a transaction on the basis of where a country is and where it could potentially get to and what could be done on the positive side of the scale to help them get to that point whereby they would then become more qualified perhaps to purchase something without doing it in kind of a patronizing way. I think that's, that's one way to do it and gets away from kind of if you do X in a static moment in time, you'd be, you know, uh, you know we would condition the sale on your, your X, Y, and Z, although I think there, there's room for that as well. There's the post-sale conditionality, though, which I think may be also what you're getting at, um, which I think also needs to be built into the transaction. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm dealing with, with, from kind of two points of the transaction, before and then after. Um, and you want to build the conditionality in before the sale for after the sale, if that makes sense. So that's what we mean when we talk about kind of the strengthening of terms um, and clarity of, trans of uh, the, um, the conditions of sale. Um, but then also the policy options that are available to the department, um, the departments, if the, the terms of a, of a transaction are violated. So not just sort of all future sales shall be ceased, but perhaps you know all items within this category have to be sort of rendered to a safe space for now or whatever it is. I think there are more creative options, some of which I know are being exercised. Um, on the issue of, and I know uh, Larry will probably have ideas on that as well. Um, Sorry, it's getting late in the panel. I'm getting more and more sort of inarticulate. But the, uh, hopefully you get at what I'm saying. We, we do deal with it in the report. On the service life question, I think it's a really good one. Um, and again, sometimes the answer to these questions, we don't have a specific like, sort of recommendation in the report that deals exactly with it. But I do think in, on this issue, we deal with it in a couple of different ways. Um, one of it, we do actually explicitly, I think, call out um, that the analysis of risk should include sort of um, how the item you know, will be kept track of throughout its sort of service life, not only at the moment of sale. So that would mean sort of the, the access and kind of the operational end use um, evaluation would include sort of when conflict scenarios change um, or when conditions change. And that's another part of it. If there are the kind of external variables, meaning the setting in which the item exists or the context is something we also recommend, which seems in a way divorced from what you're saying, but I think it's actually highly related. If the department's um, and there, again, I keep having to offer these, these caveats on behalf of the State Department, which I don't intend to, but they do real-time analysis of conflict situations, et cetera. But if there is a deliberate way to try to anticipate and then uh, intentionally look at mm -hmm. arms transfers policies with respect to those conflict situations um, in a more deliberate, less ad hoc way, I know for a fact there are country-specific cases where conflict becomes a more uh, distinct reality. Uh, and suddenly there's a policy conversation about sort of exports. But I think doing that a little bit more deliberately would, would also help get at this issue of kind of the service life question because if suddenly an item you sold three years ago is being used in an entirely different context, um, I think it's, it serves the department's interest to know that. So did I answer your question? Yeah. And, and just, just to add, it's a great question. So, um, so actually, ironically, when I first went to Saudi, not everyone was supportive because there were some people that said there is no way to influence the conduct of a military during an operation. So the only way to fix it is to do, you know, fix pre-deployment training, fix our doctrine, fix, you know, fix sort of the institution 
for years in advance. So, um, so I definitely agree with you that that should be the goal. Um, but, but the the attempt to to influence the operations was sort of based on my work with the U.S. military in Afghanistan, where that wasn't really an option. You know, we're having civilian casualties. You can't just go, well, we're going to fix U.S. pre-deployment training. So the next time we go to war, we're going to have this problem fixed, right? And we were at, we were able to make real operational adjustments that made a significant difference. So, so, uh, so just the fact, again, me, you know, me, doing measurements, we were having an effect. It wasn't as much as, you know, we, we potentially you know, wanted to, and it wasn't sustained. That's, that takes a whole nother effort. Uh, but ultimately, we want to avoid that problem. We want to be working with these key militaries uh, that, that may face operations and front load all that work so that then when they go to operations, we would have to jump in at the last minute and try to, to rescue them from, from these operational things, kind of bake it um, up front. No, I don't want to touch that. <laughs> we'll get Maybe that'll be an offline discussion. Ford, I mean, Brian Egan, I think, articulated a little bit of the department's reason, and I'm worried that there was someone here to defend it, but I, I think generally, I'm not going to offer an opinion on behalf of what the State Department legal advisor thinks, but uh, I think that, as you said, they have a different opinion about the... the uh, and they often stand alone in doing so. The binding strength of uh, Article 1. Was ICRC still here? They could probably offer... Uh, but, but, but one thing you can say, though, is that this, despite that legal position, the policy commitment that the U.S. makes, it kind of stands in the place of it. So you can use that as justification for those same kinds of efforts, just from a different source. As we conclude, I want to pick up on something that's said just at the, at the end there, that you know, there is this pressure that if we don't sell, somebody else will. And I think what our report is saying, that sometimes that's okay. That at some point you draw the line and you say, you're gonna make fun of my Picard. This far, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna allow this behavior and then no more. And where that line is, I think will differ from country to country and context to context, but there has to be a line. And what this report is saying and what I think this panel has said is we have to have the institutions and the processes and the procedures in place to be able to have that conversation in a way that is effective down the road. That these are not decisions, yes, we're making them at a place and time in context, but the legacy of those decisions lasts, you know, for many cases, more than a lifetime. And we don't want to shorten others' lifetimes because of the decisions that we're making. Uh, this is clearly a very rich topic one that you have not heard the last of from not only these individuals, but I think these organizations as well. And so I encourage you to stay engaged, stay involved, to ask the questions about the reforms and the changes to policies that are taking place. This is often an issue that gets buried in lots of other issues, uh, but it is incredibly important. And if we don't have people paying attention and asking questions, then our policymakers and our decision makers um, do not feel any pressure to have to answer them publicly and transparently. So I encourage you all to stay engaged and to continue to uh, participate in events like this and to engage with our panelists either on Twitter or otherwise. And thank you for watching at home. Thank you for coming here today. And I look forward to seeing you at the next Stimson event. Thank you. Thank you.